Hey, I want to welcome everybody back to the Behind the Well Show. It's Roger Abel. Elias, how are you today? Good. Good, Roger. Thanks for having me on the program. It's like your for 100, the 135th time uh, or whatever. Yeah, maybe Maybe not. Pulled, maybe like 95th time. Maybe we'll change it up at some point. Maybe we should have somebody else. We're about to have Jonas on. I wonder if we do a show with all three of us and bring Jonas on the show and get some of his uh, his insight that he has into what's going on today in the world of finance. Let's do it. I'm all for it. What's going on today, though, is I would say pretty big news, and that is, uh, you know, Biden's announced the student loan forgiveness program, and I, I haven't seen people this upset in a long time. I don't. Yeah, know. I don't know if this is a good. I don't know if this is a good mood. I feel like good mood, a good move. It seems like a lot of people regardless of political affiliation don't really seem like they don't feel like this is fair. Well, I, first off, I want to say I'm, I'm happy to help people that are in trouble financially. For some people, this is going to be, you know, a blessing for them, something that helps them eliminate this debt. Maybe they overspent, maybe they got into a degree and changed their mind, but Unfortunately, there's a mass amount of this population that feels totally screwed. Anyone who never had a student loan well, let, or anyone who had a student loan and paid it all back. So, so let's think about this. You know, there's a couple avenues. One, you went to college and worked your way through college. I know several people that worked 40 hours a week through college so they didn't have to take a loan. They're not making over 125000 a year. They feel screwed. Two, the person who actually never went to college. They said, hey, I, I don't have to go to college to make a good wage. I'm going to go work hard, start a business or whatever. They feel screwed. And then the people that got out of college and said, hey, I'm not just going to let this thing keep going forever. Right, right. I'm going to take care of this in five or six years. I know you're a Dave Ramsey follower. Knock out the student loans, right? Knock them out. Get rid of your debt. They're trying to be financially responsible they feel screwed. The problem with this is additionally, and I, I saw a friend of mine post this, and this is not political. This is just how people feel. So we're giving everybody 10,000 to pay off some student loans, yet every single high school graduate, we're just gonna let them go borrow another 10 grand. What about those guys? Are they gonna get theirs paid off too? So I don't even know if he can do this. I don't think you can just pass an executive order and spend $300 billion, which is, I think, what the price tag on this is, is around $300 billion. I think this has to go through congressional approval. I'm not, I, I'm in no way a political expert. Doug Wagner would know. We should probably ask Doug. Well, I'm sure Doug will be all over this. But I, I don't really think the majority of people feel great about this. Yeah, I don't think so either. And a couple of things to add on to some ideas you were talking about. So, and people feel like it's unfair. Well, um, you mentioned what about people who never went to college? Maybe if you think about a lot of people working in the trades that maybe did an apprenticeship through a union or just some level of on on the job training there's still a cost associated with their education. Even if you're going to be an electrician or a plumber or a carpenter, 
you still have you still spend time in classes you had to purchase all the tools necessary to work in those trades so it's not like their education was free i mean like right okay on paper it was free they weren't charged tuition for it but you know they still paid a cost there's human capital involved yeah there's 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 time and everyone i know with apprenticeships like everyone in the union pays a little bit of money out of their hourly wage to fund the program so there's a cost associated with it i feel like if they're going to do this you just need to tell everybody in america hey we're just giving you a ten thousand dollar check and that's the only way to make it fair right and my wife actually came up with this idea she goes well you know, maybe instead of just giving this a student loan, if a person had a student loan or whatever, and they were responsible and paid that off, maybe they want $10,000 of their other debt eliminated, their credit cards or whatever it is. Or, you know, I don't know. She's like, maybe we just have a $10,000 stimulus because that's really what this is. Everybody gets 10,000. If you have a student loan, it's applied to a student loan. Then if you don't have a student loan, but you have other debts supplied to the debts. And then if you've been ultra responsible with your money and you have no debt, then you get $10,000 that you get to invest or do whatever you want to do with. That's how to make it fair. That, that is, that would be the fair. That would be fair. That's the only way. And that's really, you can't really do it just on student loans and make it fair. And oh, by the way, let me ask you the next question. Would that be inflationary or not? If every single person in America, this is another inflationary item. You're talking about. Yeah. Doing, if you were going to do 10,000 per person. So like I'm married. So our house would just now get $20,000. So if you had 20,000 student loans, you knocked them out. That's four or $500 a month coming in your pocket. What are you going to do? Buy a new car. Yeah, this, this would not be a, this is not a good time to do something like that. Really think about this. Let's say a family gets 20,000, they pay off their student loans. You know what that more than likely what that family is going to do? They're going to go get $20,000 of other debt. The majority of people will. They're going to go buy a car. They're going to buy a new house. You know, they're not going to take that difference of money, that five or $600 and start investing it. That's not what they're going to do. They're going to spend it. It's going to be inflationary all over again. You know, it's interesting though. Well show fans, they'll, They'd invest the money. What happened to the market like on Friday, right after this news came out? Big sell off Friday. Down a thousand points. Yeah. No one's talking about it. And and the reason that sold off, everybody's talking about, is because Jerome Powell came out and was extra hawkish, had higher for longer. But was this part of it? Are people going, wait, that's three hundred billion dollars more into this economy? That- when we already have inflation? I mean, think about it. It's inflationary. Think about it. What did everybody get for stimulus checks during COVID? I don't know because I didn't get one. Was it like twelve hundred a person or something? I don't remember because there was like three. They did there were stimulus checks three or four different times. I don't remember what the total was. And that was highly inflationary. That caused inflation. I never forget Fourth of July, two thousand twenty. Every time I saw a firework go up, stimulus check. It's the greatest firework show I ever saw in the neighborhood. So I, you know, if someone has you know, insight on that, you know, message us. We'll talk about it on the show, but I have a feeling this isn't the end of this. I I think that there's going to be lawsuits. And if this actually happens, I I'd be highly surprised. This is primarily just used as a political move. That's, that's what this is. And don't you think there's to me, the student loan is okay. The student loan problem is kind of like 
a symptom, but wouldn't real to me like a real okay? What's the real problem? Well, the problem is it's expensive to get education beyond high school. But if you look at if you and I, I'm not one to tell anyone what to charge people for services, but if we're gonna try and fix this problem, shouldn't like the cost of education be more in line with what your career's going to be? Like if you're going to be get it if you're going to be a teacher, shouldn't it almost be like a standard this is what it costs to become a teacher because this is affordable on the salary you're going to make as opposed to, you know, a young kid, they just they pick schools based on um, the amenities and all these things that really don't matter. Yeah, we forgot that it's about education and it's not about having a flashy new school, a new football stadium, a new basketball arena, especially at the high school level. Yes, it's sold as an experience, but what it, what you really should be going to do is just get an education. Yeah, if someone told me they're going to get an experience, go do something different. Like you can just have a job and get the college experience. You don't have to go to college. What, the experience sitting in the classroom? People that are going for the experience aren't even going to the class. <laughs> they're showing up for the midterm and the final, and that's it. And the rest of the time, they're getting the experience. And now they're getting the experience on the taxpayer dollar. I thought about another person, something somebody, people aren't even thinking about. If you had a you know federal student loan and you consolidated it with a third party, you don't get money for that. So they got screwed too. They have $100,000 of consolidated loans, not through the federal government. They don't get their $10,000 because it's been consolidated. You know, I didn't even think about that until you just brought that up. Yeah, that's not fair either. So someone said, hey, look, my my rate through the federal government is 7.5%, but I could refinance it to four so I could save some money. They got screwed too. Right. Or if, and I don't or, ever or talk like this in the or show. Or ever like refinance into some equity in their home or something yeah. when it was advantageous. Yeah. Yeah. They feel the wow. same way. I, I think... The consensus I have for most people is they don't really feel great about this. I'm sure the people that you know are going to get some loans forgiven, they feel great. But there's a large, large percentage of the population that doesn't think this is a great thing. And I think, Elias, you mentioned something that the problem is not the student loan. The problem is twofold. We don't talk to high school graduates about what's going to happen when they go to college. We, One, we don't, and there's no... And two people don't think about paying these loans back. You know, you go look around at a private college in Iowa, you might pay forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year. So if you're going to pay $50,000, it's $200,000. There's not a counselor sitting, sitting down with someone saying, hey, is this education worth $200,000? One thing, if, if your parents are paying for it and they save money because, you know, your whole family went here, but if you're borrowing $50,000 a year to go to college, you better be a doctor. Otherwise, you're not going to pay it off. And truth be told, this 10000 this didn't help those people either. No. And it, there's so little transparency. I saw a gal posted on a Facebook feed, someone I went to high school with, and she said, you know, in same feeling like, hey, you know, I wish mine were forgiven. They weren't. But if we help people, that's great. Like, I'm not, I'm happy for the people that are getting help. But she made a comment when she enrolled in this private school, it's 35000 the first year. They didn't tell her it was going to go up every year. Her fourth year was 48000 Where's the culpability on the college's part? How did college get 13000 a year per student more expensive? 
over four years. That was a 40% increase in tuition. Yeah. And you don't, yeah, you don't realize you're not agreeing to a pr annual price for four years. Your tuition can get, can go up while you're in school. When I was getting ready to go to college, there is a private college in Iowa I wanted to go to. Like I thought I was going there. So I went up there on my visit. I was going to play football, all that stuff. Spent the night. It was a great time. I'm all rah-rah, ready to go. I'm like, yep, I'm going to go here. And the next day I sat down with the whatever the counts or the aid person, whatever they call them. I don't even know. But they started talking about the cost. And she laid out this cost. It was like $36,000. I'm like, oh, for four years? She's like, no, per year. I jumped in my car and told my mom and dad, not going here. <laughs> I went to junior college for a couple of years, and then I transferred to Iowa where I got my degree. But I wasn't willing to go. $160,000 in debt to have an experience. And you realistically, you probably wouldn't have paid the full tuition. Very few students at the private schools well, in the state pay the full tuition. I, I was it's paying still expensive. I though. was paying full tuition. You were going to have to pay full. Okay, My family well. didn't made just enough money that there wasn't really yeah, need there. My grades weren't good enough that I got any money there. Um, oh yeah. There, there really wasn't any, you couldn't get any scholarships for your academics. I, you know, I didn't put any effort into that either. So that's probably part of it. And I don't think I was getting a scholastic scholarship <laughs> for <laughs> academics. Not that they were bad, just, you know, they weren't probably good enough to pound out a bunch of money from a private school. But gotcha. neither here nor there. You know what my high school basketball coach always said about high school what? to the guys that had bad grades on our team? He'd always say, you know, if you can push a pencil and breathe, you should at least be able to get a B around here. Oh, yeah. I had oh, I had over a B average, but it wasn't good enough. Like, I was on the honor roll or anything. I wasn't putting any effort into it. I know. I just always thought that was funny when he would say that. Um, last Tuesday, we talked about this on our, on our uh, live radio show that September is the worst month for the stock market historically. And we have a chart. If you want to check it out, you can go to btwellshow.com and we'll put this up there. Um, but on average, September averages a loss of 1.13%. And this is going back to 1897. Um, the, all the other 11 months average a gain of 0.77% each. This is the only month that averages more than a 1.3%, 1.13% loss. I don't yeah. know why that is. It's it's an interesting t statistic. Um, maybe some of it is because of volatility with election years. You know, we, we did a podcast six, seven months ago, eight months ago, that you should be expecting some volatility in this midterm election year. And that's right before elections. Maybe there's some correlation there. There could be, because that's basically what every two years you're going to be in that scenario. You're being in that. Yeah, it's either midterm elections or presidential. Like there's always this election cycle and that's just the precursor to it. So maybe it's just enhanced volatility. Um, yeah, and I some of the ideas in the article about this, which the, the article was kind of getting at, there's really no great explanation. Um, but even just the point in the article that maybe summer's winding down so people start taking a look at their portfolio and clean it up and selling positions. I mean, I could actually see that contributing. Now, this says there's no significant data to prove it, but people, a lot of a lot of stuff in our life goes on the back burner in the summer when you're working and taking summer vacation and stuff like that. So, guess what else has to be done in September and October? People who filed filed a tax extension extension. 
their final tax payments due. I mean, so, if they yeah, there could be business owners that are liquidating liquidating stock positions. It could be people tax loss harvesting, just getting a jump on the end of the year, saying, "Hey, I, you know, like you said, I'm back to normal business. Let's sit down with the CPA at September." see we can tax loss harvest if there's anything we need to do from that standpoint. So there's a lot of things that go into it. I think the number one thing to think about is we can't time the market. And the good news is October's average return was up 1.38%. So if you just did nothing, you've done really well. Um, September is a good time to, to buy. If it's a bad month for stocks, you might as well just deploy some cash in September. I always do my profit sharing in September. So I guess I got to keep that in mind. Maybe it's just better to wait to do that profit sharing till every single <laughs> September 11th or September 12th or 13th, right before the 15th month when it's due. But uh, I just thought that was really interesting that the market in September has been bad. I don't want anybody to believe that they should try to time the market. I think on this show, we've dispelled the myth that that, that can't be done. Um, and it kind of leads us into the next thing. And this the show is really all about September. And this is one um, one item, Elias, that we don't probably focus on a lot, but it's a good time to bring it up. September is Life Insurance Awareness Month. So for today's show, I thought we'd take care of five life insurance myths that are out there and kind of talk to people about why life insurance is important. Um, this is probably the one thing nobody wants to buy. Nobody wants to talk about unless you're an insurance agent, then you want to sell it and you want to, you know, talk about it. But for a lot of people, this is the self-completing portion of their financial plan. And that that's how I talk to especially young people about this. And this is how young people should think about this. If you are 20, 30, 40 years old and you're married with kids or whatever your situation is, if you're not married, that's one thing. But if you're married with kids, you need to be thinking about if something happens to me, number one, like there's dead or kids that need to be taken care of. Right. But number two, there's all these contributions that would have been going to a 401k over the next 20 or 30 years that are no longer being put in there. How do I make sure to make up for that for my spouse, assuming they're not going to you know, get remarried or whatever? Like we want to make sure they're on the right track. So this is the self-completing portion of the financial plan, meaning, OK, when 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 our financial software calculates how much somebody needs, it's looking to make sure that that there's income replacement for the spouse, but also how do we get enough money coming in to fund a retirement account or a non-qualified brokerage account to grow for our spouse so they have retirement dollars? Very few people think about that. Most This is mostly positioned to pay off debt or you need six, six to 10 times your income because you have kids. Like that's a good way to do it, but it's not really the mature way. The mature way is to run this in a financial plan and figure out how much is really relevant to your situation. And that's the, I guess to me, so the first step is let's define what life insurance is and how it should be used, right? So like you're talking about in a financial planning scenario, it's really income replacement. It's a tool that insurance companies offer so you can mitigate your risk to an insurance company to replace your income uh, if something were to happen to you or happen to your spouse or in a very, very unfortunate situation, something happens to um, you and your spouse at the same time. But the fir- the other part of this first step is, and this is kind of a philosophy item, but 
life insurance to me should not have any savings aspect. It should not be um, presented as an investment. If you listen to a presentation and it's life insurance, that is somehow an investment. Or put it this way, if you have to have a physical to buy the product, meaning like a nurse is going to take your blood and check some things and, and go through insurance underwriting, that's an insurance product. That's not an investment. You should never believe that that's part of your long-term wealth building and, and savings plan. I mean, maybe for some super high net worth people, but I don't know that we're going to get into that. But for most everyday people, it's just, it's a tool to replace your income if your family needs it. Okay. Permanent life insurance is presented to the young population in America, primarily because these insurance companies go hire college graduates. They tell them they're going to be financial planners, but really that's selling permanent life insurance to your buddy. Yeah. I've in my there. opinion, there's really only a couple places where permanent life insurance is even to be considered. One, let's say you had a term life policy with a conversion option. You found out you had cancer that was terminal in the next two or three years. Maybe you'd convert your policy to a permanent policy to make sure it's going to pay out. I've had that situation happen with a client. That would their, be appropriate. Their term insurance is going to be up in about 12. It was like 12-ish months. She, this is her second bout with breast cancer. We converted the policy to a permanent policy, and sure enough, she passed away like 18 months later with breast cancer. Well, that made sense. Two, if you're not maxing out your 401k at work and your spouse's Roth IRA and your personal Roth IRA, if you're, if you're maxing out all of your accounts, right, then maybe the idea of permanent life insurance might come into the equation. Most of it's still going to be missold to people. So if there's an insurance agent selling you permanent life insurance and you're not maxing out your 401k and you're not doing a Roth IRA, and remember, a Roth IRA is tax-free, and that's what they're going to sell this benefit of this life insurance distribution. It's tax-free. That's because it's a loan. You're borrowing your own money back. They don't tell you that. Yeah, it's a ta yeah. and you can bank on yourself and all these different all, concepts. All this, sorry, most of it's garbage. If you're not maxing all of those things out, 401k, Roth IRA, then you should just absolutely say no to this. The only other place this permanent life insurance becomes relevant is the wealth transfer phase of your life. Meaning you've accumulated all the money you need to be financially independent and you're trying to figure out a very efficient way to transfer wealth. It can be meaningful. The large, vast majority of our population doesn't need help from life insurance to transfer wealth. Yeah, very few. Very I mean, few. we're talking what, like less than half a percent of people. I don't I don't wanna I don't wanna guess because I don't know, but it's small. Okay, so myth number one here, Elias, is that everybody needs to have life insurance. I think most people probably need life insurance for a period of time. The yeah. primary period is raising a family, getting established. You know, if you're 22 years old and you have no kids and no spouse, you don't need life insurance. You don't need no. life insurance. The second arena uh, where you probably don't need is if you were on a financial plan, and you're completely financially independent, why would you need life insurance anymore? You got to the point where you got $2 million saved, why would you need life insurance? You probably don't. It can be quantified in a financial plan. And this is why term life insurance fits best for most people because you're really buying this for a period of your life. 
when your financial risk is greatest right now for yourself and myself, our financial risk is greatest. We've got young kids. My spouse doesn't work. If something happens to us, how do we make sure these kids are taken care of? They get to go to college. They don't have to worry about getting a $10,000 rebate from the government. That was a little bit of dig, (laughs) you know, (laughs) how do we make sure that our spouse can stay home and raise the kids when our income's gone? All these different factors. So that's really when people need it. But if you're a single person with no beneficiaries, I mean, if you have to name a parent or a sister or someone you don't know as beneficiary, that should probably be red flag number one, that you don't need life insurance. Yeah, it it should. And then, you know, obviously our philosophy is probably pretty clear. You just buy term insurance to to, um, cover your family's income replacement. And here's what, uh, this is one of the analogies I've heard, even friends of mine in the business that sell whole life insurance or permanent life insurance, whatever you want to call it. And the, the whole analogy of like buying your house versus renting your house, that's such a terrible analogy. So if you ever hear that one, what would you rather, why would you rent your insurance when you can buy it? That's not even comparing apples to apples. It's a owning a home and buying an, an insurance product to mitigate risk, that's not even a comparable situation. That's you a terrible what, analogy. You want to know what actually might be a better comparison? Buying permanent life insurance would be like buying your personal residence, but you're going to rent rooms out, rent rooms out inside of it to from turn yourself. it in, from yourself to turn it into investment. That's a more so, accurate analogy. So my family's going to live in this house. We're going to have the upstairs, but we're just going to let these strangers come in and we're going to VRBO all the time because we're going to try to make our personal residence into an investment. What is our house? I've said this for so long. Your personal residence is not an investment. It is a lifestyle. It doesn't generate dividends, income, or capital gains until you decide to downsize. Most people don't downsize unless they're forced to. Now, the whole idea of renting versus owning is a horrible analogy. It's used by insurance people to make you feel better about buying permanent insurance. Second myth, you need life insurance to pay off your debts. And I think I'm going to get pushback on this right off the bat until people think about this. Yep. If you have a wife and kids, you need life insurance to pay off your debts. It's really not to pay off your debts. It's to make sure your family's okay. If you are 20, 21 years old and you have a car loan, well, when something happens to you, they'll just figure it out at that point in time. Why do you need to pay it off? Who are you paying it off for? And they're going to try to sell you credit life insurance out there at the dealerships and all that stuff. You don't need it. You just say no. You just say no. I don't need it. Three, everyone needs life insurance to pay for a funeral and other final expenses. And I can actually see where people would would believe this. Um, But if you've saved up and you're financially independent and you have, you know, even 500, 300 million dollars, someone needs 10 grand to pay for your funeral. And I'm going to give you an analogy. For a long time, I was... Not an opponent, but I was opposed to people pre-funding their funeral, meaning we go to the nursing home or go to the, the funeral, we give them X amount of dollars, and then you know the family doesn't have to worry about the funeral. And in my younger years, I'm like, well, that's such a waste because you could just save the money and compound the interest and they'd be so much better off. And that's true. But we've been through two deaths here recently where 
the funerals were already paid for and taken care of. And on paper, it was a probably a bad investment. But from the family's point of view of having everything set up and nobody had to worry about going and filing claims and what bank are we going to take this money from? It was one of the best psychological investments. So if you're financially independent, instead of buying an insurance policy, maybe go to the nursing or the funeral home. And why do I keep saying nursing home? Go to the funeral home. Because it's uh, the first stop. Jeez. Sorry. <laughs> That's off the rails. Bad joke. I mean, unfortunately it is go to the, the funeral home and just get everything taken care of. I know I, for a long time, I told my wife I said, I don't understand why people do this. At some point I'm going to the funeral home to get everything taken care of for my family. They don't have to pick stuff out. It's just done. They show up and have a great celebration of life. And, and that's why most people do it. Just, they just know it's going to take a burden off, take a burden off of their family at a time that it's already everyone's emotional and very sad. So it's, I think most people that do that, they just feel like, well, I can at least, if it's all planned out, that's one less thing to worry about because everyone's going to be grieving at that time anyway. Four, everyone needs enough life insurance to replace your lifetime income. The best way to figure out how much you need is plug it into a financial plan. You need enough life insurance to make sure your family can operate while if you're no longer there, one, and two, make sure that they're able to see the retirement, the retirement funds with enough money that makes up for your future contributions to your 401k. That doesn't mean you got to replace your whole income. If you're putting in 10,000 a year into your retirement plan, well, that's not your whole income. You might be making 150,000. So run this through some type of modeling, not just the rule of thumb. Oh yeah. Three to five times you're not married because you're not married. You shouldn't have it unless you have kids. And then it's probably got to be a lot more. Um, I don't know what your thoughts on that, but I, I don't think people need to worry about replacing their full lifetime income. I I agree with what you're saying. I I think if you, you know, if you subscribe to goals based planning and stuff like that, and you know, the nice thing, our software just literally tells you, this is the amount you need for this many years that would fund this plan, and our plans are all based on goals. So. To me, that's just a more prudent way to look at the situation. It's not a guess. Like just saying, okay, 10 times my income, that's a good rule of thumb, right? But that's a guess. But it's how long do you thumb. need it? It's not because unique. Think about how insurance is priced. It's priced on how much you buy, but how many years you buy it for. So if you buy a 30-year policy, $100,000 for 30 years, that's significantly more on from, a, from an annual premium outlay than 100,000 for five years or 10 years. And the cool thing about our software, and I never did this until the software quantified it this way for people, it will say, well, you need 700,000 for the next eight years. And then you only need 300,000 for the next five. Well, you can just start layering policies to match exactly what the goals are versus buying 500,000 for 30 years, because we don't really know how long we need it. We just know we need 500,000 a day. And we're able to incrementally lower the premium for people. Yeah, And nobody does it that way. There'd be no way. And that's not, you know, that's not a knock on the insurance industry. But if you don't have the software, there'd be no way for you to know how to do it that way. Um, right. Because it's, I think insurance people are important, especially if you're selling term life insurance to people. They're trying to take care of you. Um, but this is a really good way we can run a plan and say, hey, this is how much insurance we need to have for the next 15 years, 10 years, and five years. 
incrementally lower their premium for people so they're paying the least amount possible for the maximum benefit. And who wouldn't like that? That's what the goal of everything is. Um, and five, you don't need to worry about life insurance policy after you purchase it. I can go on and on about why you should. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. Like if you have a life event and your life changes, it might be something to consider or I don't know. You should, I guess, know, always know what you have, right? And how it works. Well, I mean, you can't just forget about it. Let's think about this. You have a, your spouse could pass away. You need to change a beneficiary in your life insurance policy. If you happen to get talked into one of these permanent life insurance policies, the insurance company could have changed the rules on you. So you probably need to go do an annual checkup on those. And the big thing, you know, I saw this, especially like 15 years ago, you know, people took out universal life policies in the 70s and 80s with assumed rates of return between 10 and 12%. Well, we've been at a near 0% interest rate environment for a long time, so those were all lowered to the to the lowest interest rate the insurance company could pay. And a lot of people have paid in for a long time and are going to get nothing out of those insurance policies. So if you have a permanent life insurance policy you've had for purchase pre-2002, you should call your agent and be looking at that to make sure that's still a healthy policy. Yeah, and if at any time you do, if you're in that situation and then you're looking at, well, I might want to get rid of this and just replace it with term life insurance, don't ever cancel. If you still need insurance, don't ever cancel policy until you have something else in place. Absolutely. That's so keep it at least until you're through underwriting and you have the new one issued. Absolutely. We want to make sure you can get coverage because you've had situations, I've had situations where people, random people that have these policies, we're going to get them out, get them into a term life, ends up to have a health event. Well, that's why you don't cancel it until you have your new insurance in place. Uh, but I think if it's worthwhile to review with your insurance person on a, you know, it's probably not every year, but every couple of years, unless there's a family event, you should be reviewing your policy, making sure it's still fitting your goals and priorities. Um, with that said, uh, this is a great show, Elias. Happy to be back. Do you have any closing thoughts for the listeners? Just thank, thanks for listening. Reach out if you need anything. Hey, I want to thank everybody for listening to the show. If you need any help, you can go to btwellshow.com. Click Get Started. We'd be happy to connect with one of our advisors. Thanks for listening. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.